Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Hal Bryan. I'm one of your hosts. I'm senior editor for print and digital content and publications here at EAA. Sitting here on my left. I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And over there, across the table, it's... Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. Excellent. And uh, Chris, you've brought us a guest today. Why don't you take a second and introduce him for us? Absolutely. I've had the distinct honor of uh, sort of introducing this guest on stage at our speaker series. Uh, it's also the first guest who ever gave us an airplane on stage. So, uh, <laughs> wow. If, yeah, we're going to start mandating that now. That's, that's <laughs> extremely generous. <laughs> but um, we're really honored to have uh, someone um, very, very near and dear to, to our hearts here, especially the type of aircraft he flies and the work he's doing with it. Um, from Operation Migration, Joe Duff is here with us. Joe, thank you for coming on. That's my pleasure. Thank you. Joe, it's, uh, it is a, a privilege on our end to have you here. And, uh, you know, as someone who's followed the efforts of Operation Migration and, and uh, even made a few donations over the years, it's, uh, it's, it really means something to, uh, to get a chance to sit down with you. So thanks again for taking the time. Well, thank you, and thanks for the support. So let's, uh, let's go back to uh, uh, toward the beginning. Uh, what was your, uh, your first encounter with aviation? Were you somebody as a kid looking up when an airplane flew over, or how did, how did you get involved? <laughs> I can tell you a funny story about that. I was about 13 years old and I had my bicycle and it was a lovely summer day and I saw this military airplane fly low over the fields and something fell out of it. And I thought, man, there's a military secret. So I got my bike and I rode the back roads and walked the fields until I found a barf bag. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's an auspicious beginning, isn't it? And, and you, you looked at that bag of barf and you said, one day. One day. <laughs> wow. But no, I spent a lot of time when I was younger uh, in the Yukon Territories, and I have a brother who's a bush pilot up there, flies helicopter. In fact, he just retired recently with 30,000 hours of helicopter time. Jeez. So uh, um, that's where I took my pilot's license and became interested in it. It was a lot of fun. Um, I came back down to uh, my home in Toronto at that point and um, became a commercial photographer. And I was just too busy to fly anymore, and it was just inconvenient to fly. Uh, you know, renting an airplane if you don't own. So I kind of dropped out of it for a long time, and then I heard on the news one day about uh, ultralights when they first came out back in the 70s. And there was a company in Ontario named um, Northern Lights. And so I hopped in my car and drove all the back roads until I found Northern Lights. It was in an old, empty, uh, reconditioned schoolhouse, and we had a cornfield out the back where we flew from, and I bought an airplane and been flying ultralights or light sport aircraft ever since. Wow, and so what sort of, specifically, what was Northern Lights building at that time, ultralight-wise? Was it? They weren't building, they or were selling. They were selling, was, okay. Uh, yeah, it was um, Quicksilvers. Oh, okay, yeah, well, that's great. Yeah, my very- And lasers. Oh, sure. My very first solo was in a white shift uh, Quicksilver in, oh, really? in about 1982 or so, right, yeah. when they first came out. Yeah. So that was, that's, that's good, fun stuff. Uh, so uh, you were flying a Quicksilver. Did you buy one? Did you? Yeah, I had uh, two, actually. I had a two-place, then I had a um, um, Quicksilver L, a clipped-wing L. Oh, okay. Yeah, with oh, the rudders and the elevators, or the ailerons. That's, that's fantastic. That was great. Well, what first got you sort of interested in wildlife preservation? 
Aviation came first, I think. Um, you know, I was raised in the country, so I was into wildlife and, and have known about the critically endangered whooping crane since back then. In fact, my mother was convinced we had one in the backyard and I knew it was a heron, but I didn't have the nerve to tell her. So, so that's a long history. But, <laughs> but um, I've been involved in aviation since I was 20, I suppose, when I took my pilot's license up in the Yukon. And um, um, started flying ultralights in Ontario, and that um, got me introduced to Bill Lishman. Bill was the first person to ever fly in formation with a flock of birds. And um, it's a long, convoluted story. But there was a gentleman, a biologist in Ontario, named Bill Carrick. And Bill Carrick was a nature photographer, and he wanted to get photographs of geese flying close up. So he figured if he imprinted the birds, they would follow him, which they did. He took his boat out to the middle of the local lake and took off at 30 miles an hour, and the birds flew right beside him. And he was managed to get fascinating photographs, really up close. You could see every feather. And so uh, Bill Lishman saw that and said, my airplane flies at the same speed. And he was flying an uh, easy riser then with the uh, engine and gear and, and um, that uh, spoilerons. Oh, right. And so... Um, um, it took him a number of years to do it, and he did it basically as a novelty, just to you know, be fun. Bill was a metal sculptor, so, um, and so he broke a foot and crashed a bunch of airplanes, but in 1990, I'm sorry, 1988, he managed to fly with Canada geese, just locally. And um, he produced a little homespun video called Come On Geese, and that got the interest of the scientific community. And so... <laughs> Here's one of my long answers again. <laughs> Keep it going. <laughs> well, whooping cranes have been critically endangered since the 19th, well, way before that, since the act was started in 75. But back in the 40s, there were only 15 whooping cranes. That's all that existed. They migrated 15. from, yeah, 15. They migrated from northern Canada all the way down to Texas. And there was efforts by, you know, the 90s, and uh, there were efforts to uh, build the population, and, and it wasn't so critically endangered, but uh, they were trying to reintroduce them. Uh, whooping cranes learned to migrate by following the parents. The parent generation had been wiped out in the east in 1878, so there were no parents. And so they tried a number of things, but none of it, none of it worked. So when we came along with this idea, that kind of sparked some interest in the scientific community, and um, they thought, well, why don't we try a migration? So at that point, I was... I don't know, maybe I was going through the change of life or something. I have no idea. I was bored with photography, and, <laughs> and so I decided I was going to um, uh, quit and uh, work with Bill. And so we spent the whole summer trying to figure out how to imprint Canada geese and get them to follow us. And we led a flock of, I think, 10 geese right across Lake Ontario down to Virginia. Uh -huh. And that was covered by uh, 2020 back then. Um, Barbara Walters said it was the best thing, best show they'd ever done. Because it was so inspiring to her. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, the Canada we got the Canada geese all the way down to Virginia, and the following spring they came back on their own. So it kind of proved. In fact, they came back, not just back to Ontario. They landed in the the runway, and two of them walked into the barn where the incubator was. You know, that's <laughs> talk about going right back home. So it proved the technique worked, and that got the interest of the scientific community, and that's where the whole thing started. And that's when Bill asked me if uh, you know, like, I'd join him and we get the thing rolling and do a, a migration, a proper migration, so. That's incredible, and, and uh, Bill just passed away not uh, not that long ago. Yes, he uh, did, in, in uh, last December, unfortunately. So that was a, uh, a real loss. Yes, it was. So, um, 
how how actually does is Operation Migration structured? Obviously, you and Bill were uh, you know the, the the major pilots in the project, um, and then how is that then related to the uh, to the scientific community that was uh, working on the on the preservation of the cranes and, and all that? Well, um, <laughs> that's a long story too. <laughs> <laughs> um, Operation Migration. We founded Operation Migration in in uh, nineteen ninety four in Canada. And then in 1998 in the U.S., we have two separate corporations. Both are nonprofits, and both are self-funded um, through donations, no government assistance. And, um, and we have the same board of directors and the same staff, and I'm the current CEO. Bill retired quite a few years ago. Um, and so that's how the structure started. But when I say nonprofit, I mean nonprofit. We, you know, we had some, um, we did Fly Away Home in 1995 with Columbia Pictures, and that gave us some profit, which we used directly to, do our our uh, research, and so there is a uh, international whooping crane recovery team. It's five Canadians, five Americans, and they make all the decisions. So every year we would conduct a study. Um, in 2000, I'm sorry, 1998, I led uh, a study that uh, we, we raised sandhill cranes, non-endangered sandhill cranes, and led them from Ontario down to Virginia. And then the following year, we led them from Ontario down to South Carolina. And every year, I would show up at the recovery team meetings and, um, and say, this is what we can do. And they were considering it because there was no other method of making whooping cranes migratory. And so in 1998, the end of the year, I went to the recovery team meeting and I said, we can condition sandhill cranes to follow us. We can lead them on a pre-selected migration route. We can have them winter at a predetermined uh, wintering site. Uh, they'll stay there the winter, initiate their own return migration, come back to where we introduce them, reintroduce them, and they'll uh, select proper habitat and avoid humans. Now, uh, when, when you're talking about um, training the birds to, to follow you and, and, and having the pre-selected migration route, I guess for those of us who are, um, I guess, less versed in ecology, how, <laughs> um, why was that necessary? Were the, uh, were the, in, in, the remaining cranes uh, just simply didn't have the, uh, the kind of um, uh, communal knowledge of, uh, of, of where to go um, you know, uh, because that had been lost from prior generations, or, or what was the reason for that? Well, the only naturally occurring flock uh, migrated from Wood Buffalo National Park, which is north of uh, Edmonton in, in the Northwest Territories, all the way down to the Gulf Coast of Texas near Corpus Christi. And that population was growing slowly, but that's all your eggs in one basket. So the idea was to start additional populations. Well, then you have to somehow teach them to migrate. Whooping cranes are precocial birds. Um, a robin, for instance, is an altricial bird. It's hatched in a nest, it can't see, it doesn't have any feathers, can't keep itself warm, just sits there with its mouth open, uh, and it's fed by the parents until it fledges and flies away. Uh, a precocial bird uh, is hatched usually in a nest on the ground, in case of whooping cranes, it's in a marsh, and it leaves the nest shortly after it hatches. And it follows its parents through the marsh, and they show it how to eat what teeth. And so it's critically important that that chick stay with the parents. So that's where the whole process of imprinting evolved. All we do is substitute parent for pilot and spend all this time with the birds. The first thing you, that nurtures them, they'll follow. And so we have them imprinted on us, but conditioned to follow the aircraft. And that's a, a long process. And if you've got an hour, I can tell you about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, though, can you tell us a little bit more about, about what it means uh, to get the birds to imprint on you? Is this, 
Uh, are you wearing sort of the costumes? Yeah. Uh, and it, the first thing the bird sees is uh, is a human dressed up as a crane, or a, what? What actually happens there? Yeah, that's basically it. We uh, we use a, it's called isolation rearing or costume rearing, and the idea is to uh, the costume is designed not to look like a crane so much, but to disguise the human form. So it's a big baggy costume with sleeves that come down over your hands. It goes down to your calves. You wear black boots. We have a construction helmet that's covered in white fabric, drapes over your neck, and there's a visor made of mylar you see through so the birds can't see your eyes. And we carry a puppet that looks like a whooping crane, and they communicate with the puppet. And so the idea is that by the time the birds arrive in Florida, after we've worked with them all summer, all spring and all summer, they will have never heard a human voice. They'll have never seen a car up close, a building. They haven't seen a pop can or a bicycle. Uh, anything human, we remove all that. You've we never heard a human voice. No, even. we don't talk anywhere near the birds. Wow. Yeah. There's no, not even whispering. That's amazing. <laughs> now, when we're flying, we use the radio, but the birds can't hear our voices because of the engine sound. Sure. So we can talk when we're flying, but as soon as you get on the ground, and there's only a very few people allowed near the birds. And so the birds get used to it, you, and you're part of their social group. You know, you're part of their social structure. So, so, um, the idea is that, that if you eliminate all things human, when the birds first encounter those, once they're on their own, they're afraid of them. And then given enough time in the wild, then they become naturally wild. Right. So how do you get from, uh, from them imp imprinting on you in your, your sort of shapeless costume? Um, what happens the first time you get into, uh, into the ultralight and, and, uh, and one of the trikes that you guys were flying? And, and start the engine, is that a scary moment or? Yeah, it starts before that. The engine's not so bad. Uh, when an egg hatches, it's called pipping. They punch a hole in the egg and then it, it may take them uh, several hours to cut their way out of the egg. But when that happens, they start beeping to the parent and the parent communicates. And that's called a brood call. So we play a recording to the eggs when they're just hatching, the brood call. And we also balance that with uh, recordings of the aircraft engine. And so that's the first initial thing, they get used to that aircraft engine. And then once they're old enough, we put them in a pen um, and we use a puppet to feed them, and that's when they see the, the costume for the first time. We have a stuffed whooping crane that's dyed with a heat lamp as a brood model so that they get a connection of what a whooping crane is. We don't want them imprinted on people because they're never going to find in people people when it's in costume when it's time to breed. Sure. And so we have adult role models next to them, sexual imprint models are called pen next to them, so that they get that communication. And that's why we play the natural sounds. And so then as soon as the chick is old enough to go outside into its run, we have an aircraft parked there. And they get used to the shape of the aircraft and then we'll fire the engine up and let it idle. And so they're kind of used to the thing. And as soon as they hear the engine noise, it gets them excited. And so, and the brood call as well. And so once they're old enough, maybe three weeks old, um, this all happened at the Patuxent Wildlife Research Center in Maryland. That's a U.S. geological survey facility, and it has the, had the biggest captive flock of whooping cranes. I said had because it just closed last year. So budget wow. cuts. Yeah, I know. Where are those birds now? Those birds are going to be distributed to three uh, other uh, uh, breeding centers. Uh, in fact, the Smithsonian National Zoo is one of them, and the Dallas Zoo is another, and there's a private facility in uh, Florida called White Oak. It's a terrific facility. All three of them are terrific facilities, so that's, they'll get those birds, but they won't breed for a while. So, so um, 
and I forget where it was. <laughs> yeah, we're just talking about the first time we start the engine and oh, yeah. and those sorts of things. So once the birds are old enough to, to actually walk outside, we, we take them out to what we call a circle pen. And it's a, a pen that's about uh, half a meter high and, and 20 meters in diameter, just uh, made of wire. And we have the trike on the outside and the chick on the inside. And that way the prop and the wheels aren't an issue. And so we have a long puppet that uh, you know it's a regular puppet head on a long stick that we can sit in the aircraft and, and hold it on the ground inside the pen. We can pull a trigger on the puppet and it'll dispense mealworms. So the, the trike is running, the checker trick's used to the shape and that, and it comes over and, and sees the puppet and it's attracted to that and finds mealworms. So um, then you move the trike and that freaks them out. <laughs> they haven't seen it move, so you shut it off. And you tap out some more mealworms and get them to come over again. Then you start it up again. Then you move it again. And you keep doing that until the chick will follow you around that circle pin. You know, as you're laying all this out, I can't help but I have this sort of sneaking suspicion that, like, some alien intelligence or something has been doing all of this to me my entire life. <laughs> like, is, is my mom really just a puppet? Was everything sort of faked for my benefit? Yeah, I'm that way with the Reese's Cups. Yeah. Somebody pulls a trigger and they yeah, drop exactly. under. <laughs> and I don't, I don't purposely mean to make, make light of it, but as you're talking, you're thinking it's, it's, it's fascinating the, uh, you know, the, the lengths that, that you go and, and I, uh, astonishing the lengths that you would need to go to remove the human element uh, to create sort of the, the whole artificial series of experiences to prepare them for, for the real world. It's just a trial and error situation. You know, you've got this problem, so you figure out the, the simplest method to address it, and that's that's what we've done. Um, all of this has to do with trial and error. We tried some things, and it didn't work. The costume, for instance, when we were working with Canada, uh, not Canada geese, Sandhill cranes, we were using costume rearing, and we had a poncho with a red baseball hat on and our face showing. And um, the birds figured it out, you know, it didn't take them long. And so, <laughs> so when they came back on their own, they landed in a schoolyard. They landed at a golf course. They landed at a pick-your-own-strawberry-farm. In fact, we had can uh, uh, sandhill cranes landed in a high-security prison one time in, wow. the, in the courtyard. So They were just so, looking for people. <laughs> yeah, they were looking for people. That was a source of food, so you have to remove that. And so, you know, if you were to hand-raise them, then they would look at people as where the food comes from and want to be with them. In fact, they'd probably want to mate with them. That would be the problem. And well, so that, that got awkward. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why we have sexual imprint models, to make sure they're breeding with them. And it's all worked. I mean, we've, we've had three birds removed from this population because of uh, human interaction. They were too close to people, and we couldn't correct it. So one was taken off the runway at Volk Field. It wouldn't, uh, kept going back to the runway, and the, the National Guard were terrific. They used helicopters to haze it and fire trucks and everything they could do. They really tried hard. To, wow. So that bird was pulled out, unfortunately. In fact, that was 101, the oldest bird in the population. It was the first bird from year one. Oh, no kidding. And now it's in a zoo, so... Because wow. it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't leave the runway. <laughs> living, living happily ever after. <laughs> what kind of uh, on these massive flights that you do with birds in tow? Um, what kind of flight planning do you have to do into that? I mean, that has to be kind of a, a daunting task. It is. Um, it takes several months to lay a route out. In fact, we changed the route back in uh, 2008. We were flying. Um, we would leave uh, Nasida National Wildlife Refuge, which is about 80 miles due west of here, 
and then we would fly around Madison. We'd avoid all the air traffic control zones and fly around Chicago and then uh, veer into Indiana and uh, down through Kentucky, Tennessee, um, and down into Florida eventually, seven states, 1,250 miles. But we were flying right across the mountains in, in, uh, in uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, and uh, it was extremely dangerous. There were times that we shouldn't have been doing it because you'd fly over hours and hours for over rocks. There's no place to go, you know. Just if something happened, we'd be down. And luckily, nothing ever happened. We were all very lucky. Well, we were very careful, too, but we were very lucky. And so we changed the route, um, and the last route would go straight from here, basically south past Chicago, past Rockford, and then all the way down uh, to Alabama. So we'd go around the mountains as opposed to over them. I can tell you a funny story about, uh, about uh, going over the mountains, but it's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you got us peaked. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't set that up <laughs> yeah. and then not deliver well, we were down in Crossville. We had stops every 50 miles, and, and our host in Crossville, uh, um, Tennessee, was a terrific guy. And uh, right uh, south of his house, about five miles, was the Cumberland Ridge. So uh, we had all these birds at the base of the ridge. Now, whooping cranes are soaring birds, right? They don't normally flat fly. I mean, they get airborne, then they find a thermal. We fly first thing in the morning when it's dead calm so that the birds can fly on the weight created by the aircraft. So they, the lead bird may be inches from the wingtip. So Brooke Pennypacker was lead pilot that day, and I was flying chase, and Richard Van Hoeven was flying second chase. So we started climbing this ridge, 2,500 feet up, force climbing, and the birds get almost to the top, and then they break up into groups. So Richard got a few birds, I got a few birds, Brooke got a few birds. So Richard finally got his birds over the top of the hill, and then uh, he radioed back and said, what do I do? And I said, I said, go for it. Just take those birds down to the next site, 50 miles away. So he took off kind of southwest. And so Brooke got his few birds up over the ridge, and he took off southwest. So now we've got Richard 25 miles ahead, Brooke just crossing the ridge, and me picking up the stragglers on the, on the north side of the ridge. So I finally got them to the top. I, had, I think I had eight birds. Finally got them over the top. We were all spread out and heading southwest. And uh, just as I cleared the ridge, two of them turned back. <laughs> and so I just called the ground crew and said, they're coming back. They're down there. Just wait for them. And... So anyway, I took off, and I'm flying along, trying to catch my breath and settling down, and I look, and I've only got three birds. Two have dropped out. So I can see them going down below me. They're just, just going down. They're tired, and uh, they're just gliding down, and I can't chase them back down. I've been airborne too long, so I said, okay, you've got two more up here, and I gave them the coordinates. So we had a top cover pilot. Don and Paula Lounsbury were great friends from Ontario, and they were flying a... 182, and they were flying around us, tracking us. So I'm heading south. We're all 25 miles apart. And uh, Don and Paula, Paula gets on the radio and said, Joe, these birds have just crossed the ridge. They've caught some lift, and now they're over the ridge, and they're heading south, the direction they saw you go. Well, we're going southwest. And so uh, she said, they're flying. I, I think they're flying search patterns. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> they fly about a, about a mile, then they do figure eight. And then they fly another mile and do a figure eight. They're looking for you. <laughs> And, uh, and so Don and Paul are flying along tracking these, and we're heading south. By this time, Richard spirals down and finds a pl pl the place we were going to land, lands the birds. We have a pen already set up. And so these birds are, are getting further away because we're going southwest and they're going south, and Don and Paul are getting close to a uh, power station, nuclear power station, and you can't get close to those. 
you know, and uh, Dawn is saying, Paula, we're getting close to that. And she said, oh, it's okay, it's okay. And all of a sudden, two F-18s go screaming, blow them, just pass them. <laughs> so they call ATC and they said, no, no, that's, they're, just doing, uh, they're just doing maneuvers, but there's two more coming. <laughs> 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 so Don and Paula break off. Now we've got these birds wandering free and us going the southwest. And I see on the ground our ground crew coordinator, Heather Ray, who's got this bright yellow Ford uh, Escape. And I could see her. So I said, radio the tracking crew. Terry Kohler from Sheboygan has got a bunch of aircraft and he uh, donates the use of uh, uh, a 182 as a tracking airplane. See if they're tracking the previous generations of birds as they do migration back and forth. And I said, see if he's around somewhere. Well, it turns out he was in, in um, um, somewhere in Knoxville in, in Tennessee. And he said, I'll be unseen in 20 minutes. So he's got the tracking devices on right. the airplane, right? So he comes up, finds the birds in the air, and he's tracking them. Well, there's not much he can do. He can't lead them anywhere. And I put fuel in my airplane, and I was trying to get over there, but by this time I'm hitting a, a headwind, and I'm down to 15 miles an hour, so I'm not getting there. And so, so he's, we have a ground crew underneath him, and these birds wandering around lost, basically, and, and the top cover above them. So what he's trying to do is he said, well, they're going to fly right over that field ahead of you. Get out in the middle of the field with your costume on, and we have a, a vocalizer which makes that brood call. Turn the volume up on that. It's like a loudspeaker, and they'll see you, and they'll land beside you, which they would do. But before they'd get there, they'd turn, and they're off in a different direction. So the, this happened like six times, the top cover giving, giving the ground crew directions on where to go. Finally, they go through this little town, little tiny place called Athens, and there's a baseball diamond in the middle of town, and he said, they're going to fly right over that baseball diamond. So you've got to understand that there's a, a van with this big uh, Yagi antenna sticking out the top, right, and USGS <laughs> written on the side of it, and they pull up to this, to this um, empty uh, baseball diamond. And the grounds creepers kind of look in there, and two people in full costume get out, run to the middle of the baseball diamond, and start broadcasting this. <laughs> and so, of course, the birds turned, and they didn't see them, so they jump in the van and, and they left. You know, <laughs> we thought we would see it on the, and the, you know, hear it on the radio police reports. You know, <laughs> nobody knew what what they were seeing at this point. No, and it's white, you know, white costumes to your feet. So thank God it wasn't, you know one of the southern states. Well, I guess it was. <laughs> as long as the hats weren't too pointy, I guess. Anyway, we managed to uh, find the field where the birds landed right beside us. And by 6 o'clock that night, all the birds were in the pen and safe and everybody was. And that happened so many times where, you know, you'd spread the team out over half the country and, and we'd never lose a bird. Wow. You know, they just somehow pull it out pull it off. We got permission to fly over Fort Knox one time. Did you really? Tracking a bird, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was one thing I was going to add. Now, all of these migration routes, they uh, you weren't ever crossing an international border, is that no, right? No. Okay, so you were flying within the U.S., but but uh, flying over Fort Knox, and you must have had other airspaces, airspace issues over the years. Did you? I, was it a, ever a challenge to explain what you're doing? I mean, were there people who just didn't believe it? Uh, a lot of people didn't believe it. Yeah, you know, right. it, um, you could say, well, it was like the movie Fly Away Home, only there was no little girl and the mother didn't die. You know? <laughs> Spoiler alert! Hello. <laughs> but, uh, she dies in the first scene. <laughs> 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 That's I why the little girl gets to the father. I know. But uh, well, one thing that did happen is Don and Paula Lounsbury, who were great friends and uh, and really personable people, they used to they used to camp at the airport. They had their motorhome and they would land their airplane and camp there. 
So all the local pilots and air traffic controllers halfway across the country knew all about it, you know, and they would, um, you know, they'd often ask for flybys, you know, they'd clear airspace for us. They were really generous. Wow. And of course, we, we had a, our plot all in the GPS that avoided all the airspace and stayed out of their zones, and they did flight following. So, so uh, they communicated with ATC, and we communicated amongst ourselves. That's amazing. And there's these... I, the birds have no no idea that they're no. that they're getting flight following. <laughs> that, uh, that these no things no are idea. happening, <laughs> and, uh, and they don't have bags to pack or anything else. You know, yes, we yes. have motor homes and trailers and, and equipment, <laughs> and he's really noisy. We're really noisy when we fly. You know, right. it's just they do it so simply. They don't even say goodbye. They just take two steps and they're airborne. <laughs> it's, it's, they really have got it figured out. Yes, they and do. it's so powerful. I remember you mentioned Kaman geese, and that was, uh, I bought that here, actually, in Oshkosh on VHS, right when it first came out. And I was so excited about that. I, uh, before I was living and working here, and I came out for the, the convention one summer and, and took, that, uh, took that home. And I, I remember even hearing uh, uh, my dad's old neighbor Talking about the first time he saw Bill flying with the geese, and this is a, this is a you know gruff ex Navy pilot, longtime airline pilot, and and he said I just started crying right away as soon as I saw those <laughs> birds form up on that airplane, and it is a, it is a powerful image. I actually just had one um, quick follow up on the on the flight training uh, or the flight training flight. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, flight planning question that uh, that Chris was just asking. Um, the aircraft that you're flying, they, you're flying a uh, light sport aircraft, right? That's right. Okay, so uh, how long are your legs? The, the legs what, of the flight. Yeah, not, what's your... He's <laughs> not asking you to stand up. No. Yeah. Yeah. Sure your seam or something. <laughs> what, what's your endurance like? Uh, the endurance is about three and a half hours. Okay. Uh, we don't carry full fuel because um, the problem with, uh, with aircraft is trying to get them slow enough to fly with the birds. Sure. Birds cruise at 38, but when they take off, they're slower than that. And so, in fact... When you're taking off with the birds, they take two steps, you're airborne, you have to break friction. So as soon as you lift off, you're 100 yards ahead of them. And if they can't catch you, they'll turn back. So the first thing you do is push the aircraft right to stall and just hang it in the air. And then you roll it into a turn, cut the corner, uh, so the birds cut the corner and catch you. So it's that kind of flying, you know. That's, um, um. And so um, our legs, our, our stopovers are about every 50 miles. Okay. And uh, they're privately owned, and they're selected because there's a place we can put a pen up that the birds can't see buildings or hear people or see people. Um, we have to operate where there's no power lines because, you know, they may not take off cleanly. They may circle back three or four times, and power lines are a big killer for birds. Um, and then, of course, we have to have generous hosts because, um, you know, we're going to arrive at some ridiculous hour in the morning. Um, don't know when. And we might stay for... Well, till tomorrow or a week, depending on the weather. And we're going to plug into every power source you have, and we're going to use your water and, and, and your internet <laughs> connection. And that property where the bird pen is, you can't go down there anymore. <laughs> so it's <laughs> but we made some terrific friends, and they're very generous to us. And Clearly. Yeah, they really were great. We, we've, we had about 23 stops on the way. We had about 30 stopover possibles, but we had 23 places that we could, uh, 23 days we flew to get the birds south. But it would often take us three months to get those 23 mornings. Now, how does your um, how does your endurance and the way that you plan your flights compare to what the cranes would naturally do? I assume that it, that you're you're probably making the flight a little slower than the cranes would. 
Oh, yeah. It took us, I think the average was 96 days to get the birds to Florida, and they can make it back in as little as four days. So when the birds actually are flying by themselves, they, they fly as normal cranes would do. They don't necessarily conform to, your, uh, to what they learned on the way down? That's right. That's okay. Right. And they would pick uh, proper habitat, too, wetland habitat. We couldn't get wetland habitat where we could operate, it, operate an aircraft. So. But you see, um, they would just thermal all the way down. Get a, they might sit in one spot for two weeks until everything's perfect, and then they'll just find a thermal, climb up, glide to the next one. They can cover maybe 400 miles in a day, as long as the sun's generating thermals and the wind's blowing the right direction. We would, you know, if we got fog in the field, it can't go, you know. <laughs> uh, if we got a headwind that's 20 miles an hour at 3,000 feet, which is not uncommon, sure. we can't go. You, know, so. you mentioned that, uh, that community of people that host you, and uh, you told a funny story about a guy that pushed his his, uh, he made room in his hangar by pushing his like business jet outside. And yeah, he pushed his citation out. <laughs> Good for yeah, him. We had a lot of people like that. We had people that emptied the, the drive shed with bales of hay so we could put the airplanes in. Because trikes, as you know, are, are really precarious on the ground. They're worse than even a regular uh, light sport aircraft. Sure. They're, they're not, they don't do well on the ground. So back to the, the, the birds and the rounds for just a moment. Um, your, your trips leading the birds were always one way, is that correct? So you'd get them down there, and they and that was enough for them to learn how to fly, to, to, to pick their waypoints or whatever yep. whatever it was they did? That's what we, uh, we tried to replicate the natural process as much as possible, right. except for the following the airplane part. But um, basically, we would lead them to Florida, to St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, just south of Tallahassee. And we have a closed area in the refuge, and there's a pen out there that's about four acres. And... Um, it has 12-foot-high plastic fence around it, three strands of electric wire. Inside, there's freshwater ponds, there's a feeding station, but it's not top-netted. And so the birds, after they're there for a while, first, when we first get them there, we, we pen them till they get used to the area, make sure they're all healthy, have a vet check, and then we, we put radio tags on them, leg bands. And so uh, once that's done, then the birds are released. And they're happy to forage in that muck, and they love poking in muck and eating snails. But the pen's not top netted, and they realize that they can fly out. So they'll fly out during the day, and they'll feed on natural foods, and they'll get to become wild birds. And the evening, we'd come in before sunset and call them back into the pen. And they get in that habit of roosting in the pen, in the water in the pen, and that way they're protected from predators. And then one day in the spring, that's when they learn to thermal fly. They'll take off and there's thermals, and it's just an instinct. They don't have to be taught. They just spiral up. They might go to 2,000 feet. One day they just don't come back down. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so um, shifting gears a little bit here, obviously you um, you mentioned it before. You were heavily involved in the filming of uh, Fly Away Home, the, the movie, which uh, actually for me, that was probably one of the first movies I ever saw in theaters. My uh, my grandparents knew I was a bit of an aviation nut, and they were looking for something to do on one of the days they had me, and they they brought me to go see it. And uh, I just uh, I remember it making a big impression on me. But well, um, I apologize because it obviously that. changed your life. Apparently, it did. Yeah. <laughs> and he's been poking and mucking, eating mealworms ever since. It's the darndest yeah. thing. Yeah, I could have made an honest living, but. Uh. <laughs> anyway, can you tell us a little bit about um, what it was like to make a movie like that? It was terrific. Um, the Columbia Pictures were really good. Uh, we had a, a terrific director who, um, and the whole crew were very good. Um, Jeff Daniels was very nice. Anna Paquin was 15, I think, you know, she was very young. Um, 
And, but the film, we formed a company called, Bill and I formed a company called In the Sky Productions, and we provided Columbia with all the birds, all the flying, all the permits, because there's a lot of permits to working with birds. And then uh, uh, some of the cinematography, not much. So um, we did a lot of flying with them. Um, there was uh, four pilots altogether. There was um, uh, Bill, who flew his Easy Riser uh, for um, Jeff Daniels, because they weren't allowed to fly, and uh, myself and a guy named Jack Sanderson. Jack Sanderson's about 130 pounds, but he's a terrific trike pilot, so, uh, so he got to fly a lot of the scenes. Because he was smaller. Sure. So he, was he in a wig or anything? Or? No, you were in a helmet. That's true. Uh, she was, yeah, she had her helmet. Yeah, on, we both so. have our helmets. I have mine. It's got a pigtail that's uh, Velcroed to the back of it. <laughs> <laughs> I kept it as a souvenir. <laughs> you know, we did, uh, we did uh, if you remember the military scene in, the, in the, the flyway home, we shot that in Niagara Falls, uh, New York. And there's, uh, the Niagara Falls airport is half civilian and a half military. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have C-130s there, and so that's where we shot that whole scene. So we went down ahead of time with all the birds and got everything coordinated, and, and I wanted to get the birds kind of familiar with the area, so I went and talked to the people in the tower and told them what we were doing. And he said, I said, I'd like to go flying first thing in the morning, get the birds used to the area. And so um, we were taking off this grass, you know, it wasn't even part of the runway, so I called the tower and they said, go ahead and do it. So I took off and I flew the birds for about 20 minutes, and I came back in and, and I called him and said I was coming in, and he said, um, you know, approved as requested there's no traffic and I said uh, no traffic in the circuit at all and he said no sir and I said would the tower like a flyby <laughs> and so I flew around the tower about three times while the controller wrapped the speaker cord around his microphone cord around <laughs> <laughs> just watching wow <laughs> Flying with Canada geese was so much fun because there was no costumes, you know. You right. didn't have to do that. They just turned into park birds, and there's lots of park birds, you know. That, so it wasn't an issue. And uh, and um, we could talk in front of the birds, and they'd be, they'd be right in here with you, you know. They just would untie everybody's shoelaces in about 10 seconds, you know. <laughs> but I remember um, we had a flock of birds one year that didn't like to climb. I think they were afraid of heights. It, it's, it's the weirdest thing, you know. We were going down through Virginia and climbing the ridges, and we'd work the birds over a ridge, and we'd get up to find and clear the ridge, and I'd okay, the next ridge is 10 miles away, and they'll stay here, and they would go right down to the surface again. <laughs> so anyway, I'm flying around Port Perry, my hometown, and I'm yelling at these birds, you know, and we normally yell, come on, geese, but, um, but I was yelling a few um, other words, choice <laughs> words. <laughs> get the heck up here, you birds, you know. <laughs> And so anyway, I'm walking downtown the next day, and I meet this woman I know, and, and she says, oh, I saw you flying yesterday. What were you yelling at those birds? <laughs> I had no idea people could hear me on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. So what's, uh, what's next for uh, Operation Migration? Well, we're still working with whooping cranes. We still have a right. long ways to go. Um, this, um, the, it's called the Eastern Migratory Population, the one we're working with right now. is uh, There's 100 birds in this flyway. There's something like 23 breeding pairs. But whooping cranes don't breed until they're five years old, so it's a slow process. Um, and uh, the majority of the birds we have now are in uh, Nasita. That's where they go to nest, and we've got an issue with black flies at Nasita. Um, there's 127, I think, species of black flies in North America. Three are known to target birds, and all three are present at Nasita. Oh, so there they are, and they're in the marsh on their little nest, which looks like a you know, hump of straw on top of the water, and uh, it turns warm, and the black flies come out. 
black flies aren't like mosquitoes. They burrow in. When black flies bite you, it's on your hairline and down your neck and up your sleeves. And so they burrow through the feathers. And um, we've got pictures of birds where they're just pink from blood. Um, and, uh, and it forces them off the nest. So the uh, eggs get abandoned. So we're trying to deal with that. Um, the biologist at, um, at Nasita, his name is Brad Strobel. He's a great guy, and he's working really hard to fix that. And they, they're now doing a program called forced renesting. So they um, estimate the temperature days to find out when the black flies are going to come out, and then they go and pull all the eggs. And those eggs go into captivity and are hatched in incubators and go to the reintroduction program. Uh, in the meantime, that forces the birds to re-nest. If all their eggs are lost early in the incubation process, they'll re-nest. And they do that after the black flies are out. Wow. So we managed to get a lot of eggs. I think two years ago we had 23 eggs, which is more than enough to make this population viable, but only two survived. Oh it takes gosh. 80 days from the time the chick hatches until it can fly. And that's the, the danger period. And so we've got an issue at Nasida we're trying to figure out. So. And what's the... Uh, in the, the meantime, we're, sorry, I'm no. sorry, but I just got to finish this off. In the meantime, we're uh, working at White River Marsh, which doesn't have black flies. And we have um, a couple of breeding pairs there. But it's a, it's a long process. It takes five years before they breed. So anything you do now, you'll have an indication of the results in five years from now. Wow. And, and what's the estimated population of the birds now? Well, well the last count was, uh, they do the final, the official count in Texas when uh, at the Aransas National Wildlife Refuge about December, and those numbers are released in about now. The last count was total population 661. Wow. And that's all the birds in captivity as well. Okay. And that, is that up from that 15 yep. number? From, yeah. Which... 661 still feels like a dangerously scary small number, but it is when you think compared about the to 15. Yeah. You know, because there's a genetics bottleneck there too. Right. Yeah. So it, there's a possibility that could implode as well. Wow. Well, Joe, uh, we can't thank you enough. Um, not only for taking some time to come on the show, but thank you for what uh, what you've done over the years, along with Bill and and everybody else involved to. Uh, do your part to to make the world a bit of a better place. I hate how cliche that sounds, but that's <laughs> it's uh, it's absolutely true. Uh, and and what a um, what a happy side effect. I think one of many happy side effects of the work that you've done is to put uh, light aviation into such a positive light. I mean, nobody you, you talk about the tower watching the flyby. I mentioned the, you know the old neighbor tearing up at at uh, Bill Lishman's Come on geese. I can't think of of a just a more fundamentally positive sort of a, perhaps even universally sort of beloved image than something like that and watching watching somebody fly not just like a bird but with the birds. Well, thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here, and uh, you know I attribute all this to the birds. It's not us. It has to do with the birds. All the images that we take that we get credit for, mm-hmm. it's because the birds are such an interesting thing to photograph. But but moreover, I think education, which you're helping with right now, is, is, is a huge part of this, you know. Um, with aircraft, we can save a species, but with education, we could save them all. Uh, you use, a, if you're going to save a species like, like whooping cranes, for instance, and you have to save its habitat. And in order to do that, you have to have media attention and public interest. But when you save it, you not only save it for whooping cranes, you save it for all those less engaging creatures that make it work. Right. It's part of that ecosystem, and without that ecosystem, it's not going to work. You know, 
I always think that just as important as saving whooping cranes is the whole message that this gets out, and it appeals to an aviation audience and a bird-watching audience and just an adventurer's audience. But we have to learn that the Earth is this huge, big machine, and it produces, its product is everything we need, you know, from the water we drink, the food we eat, the materials we use, right to the air we breathe comes from this machine. And every boreal forest, every tall grass prairie, every, uh, every ecosystem is like a big gear, and, and one turns the other. They all interact to make the whole thing work, and the teeth on those gears are species. And here we are chipping them off one at a time, wondering when the gear's going to slip and the system's going to stop. So this is critically important, not only for the survival of whooping cranes. It's not that whooping cranes are just nice to have and so you want to save them so your grandkids can see them. That's the least important part. The most important part is we want to save them because they're going to save us. You know, they're, they're harbingers of what's coming. So, right. And I suppose even the black flies have their place. Black flies as, have their uh, place. As irritating as, <laughs> irritating as they are. Even our own lake flies here in Wisconsin have their place. Well, Joe, thanks, uh, thanks so much once again. And thanks to everybody out there for listening, for continuing to provide uh, the feedback and the reviews on iTunes and Google Play and all those great places. Uh, please keep your questions and comments coming uh, on our blog posts when we release these. Uh, you can send us email to care of uh, feedback at eaa.org. And with that and our ongoing thanks, We'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.